Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Manaheim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and had stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I might do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And those are, and what, whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed the night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Two weeks ago in my message, I asked, have you ever felt forgotten by God? Last week, I asked, have you ever felt like God doesn't, he- doesn't see you or hear you? Today, I ask you, what do you do when you are at the end of yourself, when you have tried everything and there is nothing else to do? The answer to that is, you wrestle with God till morning. In our scripture reading today that Becca read, Saul has a prototypical Saul of Damascus experience. For Saul, who is also known as Paul, his wrestling was spiritual. He is on the road to Damascus to take Christians um, in to be, uh, to be tried, and he is struck down to the ground by the Lord himself and struck blind. Jacob, his is spiritual, physical, emotional wrestling. When Saul is struck with his blindness, he hears a voice he doesn't recognize. Jacob, he doesn't recognize who he's wrestling until afterward. I'd put in my notes that Jacob wasn't normally a wrestler, but I was wrong because he wrestled all the time. He didn't wrestle physically. I mean, I guess at the very start, he grabs his brother's heel, Esau, as he's coming out of the womb. And that's why his name is Jacob, which means heel grabber. Most of his wrestling was with his mind. He was a schemer. He wrestled with his father, his brother, his father-in-law, his wives, He is constantly wrestling with God spiritually. This chapter, it's where it's physically happening. And what had been metaphorically happening before his whole life, God has appeared to Jacob time after time in still small voice in dreams, but now physically, he physically wrestles with him. No still small voice this time. Um, This time he has come and God has come to lay the smack down on a stubborn sheep. You probably noticed my, uh, my sermon title today. It's a uh, play on some uh, professional wrestling stuff. Um, there was a wrestler in the 80s, and I know people my age, and 90s, and today even. He's a really old guy to be doing what he's doing. Um, Hulk Hulk Hogan. And his thing, Hulkamania is running wild. And um, I, so I named it Israeli Mania is running wild because of the wrestling in this chapter. Um, I was going to make some uh, thing about how this isn't a lot like uh, professional wrestling, um, but in many ways it is. Um, some terms in wrestling are, for instance, the bad guy is known as a heel, and Jacob's name means heel grabber. Jacob, in this chapter, he's renamed Israel. He is born again. He's given a new name. In the New Testament, we know that in Revelation, we're be, we've been given a new name when we've been born again, a name only the Lord knows. So he's been born again, so a name for a good guy is a baby face in professional wrestling. 
And then what you call it, what a bad guy becomes a good guy is a face turn. So we have a face turn in this chapter where Jacob, he's no longer Jacob. He is known as Israel. Jacob wrestles this man in this chapter. Spoiler alert, this man is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate form of the Son of, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I had my notes that this wrestling was nothing like the wrestling in the WWE, but it kind of was. And one other area that I didn't mention is that there is a preordained, there's a preordained outcome to this wrestling match. It's just that Jacob hadn't read the script, so he didn't know. At any point in time, this man could have taken him out, could have turned him into a pillar of salt. You know, he puts his hand on his, on his, uh, on his hip and it goes out a joint. In the 90s, wrestling was very, very popular. It's hard to explain to kids today. But I remember going to school on, uh, they used to have Monday Night Raw, Monday Night Nitro. And this, the popular girl in school, most popular girl in school, had a WCW shirt on. And we argued for a half hour about what happened the night before on, on Nitro. Um, that's how popular it was. I had my own wrestling move too called the Fish Slam. We do backyard wrestling. Basically, it's dropping somebody on their head. It was super dangerous. I'm probably the reason why they have, like today, they have don't try this at home. I absolutely tried it at home. In fact, I uh, almost broke my little brother's arm one time, so don't really try it at home. Um, wrestling in the ancient world, however, wasn't for entertainment like it is today. It was a battle. It represented the struggle between life and death of unarmed combat. To continue to hold, on, to hold on to your opponent after they had bested you instead of running away would be crazy, desperate. But Jacob was desperate. In this chapter, he tries everything. He plans, he prays, he replans, and doesn't seem like anything is going to work out. So the last thing he does is he wrestles and he holds on. And in our life, oftentimes when it comes to things in our life, sin, issues we're dealing with, we wrestle with God for a bit and then we give up only to wrestle with the same issues over and over again. There's one thing in this chapter that we should take hold is we wrestle with God all night long until day breaks, until we receive our blessing. This is the thing that captures the very heart of God. Jesus Christ gave this parable about a woman who continually goes after this judge and asks him for justice every single day. And he says, because of her persistence, even though the judge is an unjust judge, he gives her justice. So how much more will the just judge give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? He'll give you the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin, to overcome those trying situations that we have no way out, we can wrestle. In verses 1 through 8, Jacob makes his plans. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We make our plans and God laughs because he has his own plans and our plans don't trump his plans. All the planning and scheming Jacob does in this chapter, we know in the next chapter, it did nothing. His only hope was the Lord himself. 
As we read the life of Jacob, we see a man with a plan. He always has some plan to get on top. If he has to step on others like his, his older brother, he will do just that. His planning in this chapter is all for nothing. But how do you, do you, see, how do you see your life? How much control do you think you have? We're, we all think we are in perfect control of our life until something happens. In 2020, me and Becca, we had not even been here a year, and we were planning a trip for her to um, overseas, to Indonesia, to be able to minister at um, one of the places she ministers to at um, today. And um, we had gotten her a ticket for um, March 15th, 2020. I don't suppose anybody remembers what happened on that day. And we had it all planned out. We were going to do all these things. We heard about this virus over in Indonesia called, you know, COVID-19 or whatever it was called at that time. Long story short, they canceled that flight. And we had to have new plans. And we realized that truly we don't have a lot of control other than this. We can be faithful with where we're at and with what we have. That's the control we have in our life. Every proud person who sees themselves as the captain of their own destiny finds out utter failure. But what we can do is be faithful with what we have, where we're at. In verses 1 and 2, Jacob has this encouraging experience. He sees, he gets to see into the spiritual realm. Verse 1, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Commentators like Lighthammer and Gusick say the angels were there the whole time. He now sees the angels who have been with him, who have been following him. So far, Jacob in his life, he has experienced the supernatural. He was born according to, a, according to the promise of God to his mother who was barren. He has dreams sent to him by God. He has seen angels in those dreams. But in verse 1, he encounters something very surprising in its casualness of this event. He's just doing something. He's just going from one place to another and bam, there are angels. How long had they been there? The whole time. If we could see into the spiritual realm, we would see the presence of God never leaves us. But you know something? You don't need glasses to help you see in the spiritual realm. You have to accept the word of God in Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He names that place, um, uh, Manaheim, which means two camps, his camp and the angel's camp. I have to say, normally Jacob has really good names for places like Bethel, meaning house of God. This just means two camps. Could have been more creative. I thought about like, you know, if I, when I die one day, I said, I almost said, if I die, I will die one day or I'll be raptured. And I will see Jacob. I was like, I'll see Israel. And I'll probably, I was thinking, I'll ask him about this. But I was thinking, no, I won't. Because who in the world am I? How many places have I named? Manaheim's fine, two camps. <laughs> in verse three, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkey, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have, um, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in his sight. Jacob's worried about an unpaid debt. He had wronged Esau, not once, but twice. Before he left his home, Esau, Esau was saying in his own heart, 
Once my dad dies and the time for mourning passes, I'm going to get to kill that younger brother of mine. And he was comforting himself with this. And somehow his mother finds out, even though he was saying this to himself. So I can only imagine it was kind of like a Smeagol Golem moment where, you know, he's like, put his arms on, on, his, on his shoulder and it's like, why does he cry? Jacob, Jacob's a deceiver. <laughs> I told you he was Trixie. I told you he was false. Shh, my love, one day our father will die and we will be able to kill him. I don't know what he was doing, but obviously he was whispering into himself a little too loud because his mother finds out and she tells Jacob, you need to get out of here. That was 20 years ago. And she told him it'd only be a few weeks and she would send for him when Esau's anger subsided. She hasn't sent for him. See, time heals. We have that saying, time heals all wounds. It's not true. Time heals some wounds and time for other wounds, they become infected and filled with gangrene. They become sore all the more and a constant reminder, and they are held in the heart. Jacob is wondering, is that where Esau is at? Esau does not strike Jacob as the forgive and forget type of a person. 20 years may have only made things worse. He may have made that once comfort into a promise that he is standing on. So what does he do in four and five? He starts his planning. He doesn't start praying. He starts planning. In verse four and five, which I read to you here, he sends some messengers on to tell Esau of his great wealth. Now he's not bragging here. It sounds like bragging to us, but that's not what he's doing. What he's doing right here is he's trying to assure Esau, I have not come to take your stuff. Because as the blessing of the firstborn, as the right of the firstborn, he has a right to his brother's stuff. But he's telling him before he even gets there, I have no need. I'm wealthy myself. You don't have to be worried about me. He's hoping that this will, um, this will at least for Esau, allow him to at least say, let bygones be bygones. But in verses six through eight, we see Jacob's greatest fear coming to fruition. Verse six, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Esau's coming to town, and he's not bringing presents. He's bringing 400 fighting men. How many fighting men did his father, his grandpa Abraham need to, de to defeat four kings? 300 and change. This is 400 fighting men. In verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. No kidding. He... Uh, divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Here's what he's doing. Uh, two camps and one of them, which includes my children and my wives, will be my shield and then I can get out of here. So if bribery doesn't work, maybe his best case scenario is utter tragedy and devastation. That's the best case scenario that he has here. Jacob's messengers come back and it's worse. His worst fear has come true. Have you ever had these dark imaginings in your life, those fears that you dwell on and dwell on? It turns your guts cold. And no matter how likely or unlikely it will, that you think it will happen, in your very heart, it's not simply possible, it's inevitable. For Jacob, that fear comes with the messengers. 
Esau is coming to town and he's not bringing presents, but 400 warriors. Jacob is servants and candles and, and cattle. Uh, Jacob is certain he knows why Esau is coming. So he splits up his people into two groups. His best case scenario is devastation and tragedy. You know, something like this just happened in Jacob's life. Last week's sermon in, chapter, in, the, in the previous chapter, chapter 31, his father-in-law Laban comes. We don't know how many fighting men are with Laban, but it's enough. It's more than enough. In fact, Laban tells him, it's in my power to hurt you. Basically, mind your P's and Q's. But Laban doesn't because he had a vision from God telling him, do not speak good or evil of Jacob. So when Laban comes to Jacob, Jacob is bold. He gets in his face. He's like, why didn't I tell you I was leaving? You're untrustworthy. You changed my, my wages 10 times, but now his brother's coming to him. He knows this. I'm not in the right in this situation. Is God going to appear to my brother when I was the one who was in the wrong? Now, his, his conscience is paralyzing him in this. His conscience, this is one of the ways the devil works in our life is he'll bring up past sins and he'll say, that's you. How can you say anything about this when you've done this? And he'll make us question the goodness of God in our salvation. And, how, and uh, Shakespeare was right when he wrote, conscience does make cowards of us all. As Jacob had no strength before Esau because of guilt, many Christians today are also hindered by the memory of their past sins and failings. I see this in families quite a lot, in parents and children. They think to themselves, how can I tell my kid not to do X, Y, and Z when I did X, Y, and Z? Or unfortunately, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And it makes cowards of us all. Instead of doing what's right, we let it, to, we let it paralyze us. Jacob, instead of, instead of doing what is right by facing this in faith, by praying, instead, I mean, he's even going to use part of his family as his human shield to get away. This was a problem of his own making. He is trying to fix it. <clears throat> he plans to further bribe his brother, but he can't fix this. This is Ferris Bueller's day off level of a problem. And he's Cameron. This is often paralyzing for a lot of people. They simply do nothing. Just let what'll happen happen because there's no fixing this. When I was a residential counselor, we would, one of the things that we would talk about our students to about is restitution. To be able to restore what, is, what you have taken. Restitution makes sense if you broke somebody's stuff, if you stole something from them, then you restore it. You, you make it whole. But I said, even in our little meetings, I was like, one student smacks another student who is doing absolutely nothing to him. How do they do restitution? Even if I let the innocent student smack him, the innocent student wasn't doing anything to get smacked. There's no restitution to be had. You can't fix this. You can't make it even, Stephen. So, what do you do? How can there be restitution here? See, Jacob cannot give back the birthright. He cannot give back the blessing. He did not earn them. They were given to him. He can say he does, but they still will not depart him and go to Esau. He has no way of making restitution for what he's done. His only avenue truly is forgiveness. And forgiveness is such a bigger term than we make it. We kind of like, we kind of think it was like, well, just, just forgive. We're commanded to forgive, so forgive. 
Forgiveness, dear believer, is one of the most supernatural acts the believer engages in. Because naturally, I can't forgive. But supernaturally, because he forgave me, I can forgive. And so it's in the Lord's Prayer. It's a part of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord dealt with me when he saved me. Is forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jacob is afraid. He says so as he prays. It's a familiar fear. As Thomas Jefferson has said, he said, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Here's the thing Jefferson and Jacob could not guess at, and that is this, how amazing the grace of God is. How incredible forgiveness truly is. We doubt forgiveness, especially when it's those we have wronged so close to us. Jacob's own sons will feel this way. At the end of the book of beginnings, at the very end of Genesis, his sons had wronged their second to youngest brother, Joseph. They had sold him into slavery and they figured the only reason why he's being good to us is because our father's alive. And once our father dies, then he's going to lay into us. I wonder where they got that from. Perhaps Uncle Esau. And they knew in their own life, we never forgive anybody. We just wait to get back at them. And maybe that's what Joseph is doing. And when Joseph tells him, am I in the place for God? What you meant for evil, God meant it for the good. Forgiveness changes everything. It is the act of God in a person's life. So Jacob makes his, he plans and then he prays. Verses nine, verses nine through 12. It's a foxhole prayer. Jacob does what we often do. We plan first, pray second. We plan first and when our plan goes, goes uh, pear-shaped, then it's time to pray. Jacob's prayer is a desperate prayer. It's a foxhole prayer. There's a saying that there are no atheists in a foxhole. Tragic times reveal, reveal a person like, uh, like easy times cannot. While yes, Jacob should have relied on the Lord first, I do have to say his, his prayer is quite remarkable. In fact, his prayer is very reminiscent. And I'll talk about that in a second. His prayer right here in verse nine. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and of my father Isaac, You know why we go over the patriarchs, why they're important? Because God says they're important. Patriarchs means fathers. And it's the fathers of the Jewish people, the fathers of our faith. They were commanded to be priests of their house, and so are you. Men, you are priests of your house. He calls upon the the God of of his father, Abraham, and the God of his father, Isaac. One day, one day, there will come a tradition amongst the Jewish people that sustains even to this day. It's called the Shema. And observant Jews to this day, they will start off their day and they will end their day with the Shema. And it goes, Shema Yisrael, which means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. One day he won't just be the God of his father Abraham, the God of his father Isaac. He will be his God. He's about to wrestle him until morning, and he will be known as Israel. O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do good. He reminds the Lord of his promise. And that's good. I mean, one of the things um, C.H. Spurgeon says, the reason why we don't have a lot of answered prayer is that we don't remember the promises of God in our prayers. We don't quote scripture in our prayers. You might notice, I've been here four years now. I do my opening prayers, I do my closing prayers. 
I fill them with scripture. I don't often say where the reference is. I hope you know what they are. If I'm praying for you at the altar, I'm putting scripture in that because I know the power I see right here of reminding God of what his promises are. In verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all of your deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. This prayer right here, it strikes me how Jacob's story sounds so much like the story of the younger son, what we call the prodigal son story. It shouldn't surprise me because the story of the prodigal son of the two lost sons, it's my story and it's your story as well. But with Jacob, it seems like almost kind of right on the nose. He is the younger brother who runs away to a faraway land. He is like the older brother that he's the man of the tents as well. He, he wants to be at home. He was the younger, but instead of demanding his own inheritance, he actually gets the inheritance of the older. Instead of coming back with nothing, he comes back with quite a lot, but all of what he has gained is carried away, and he is alone. In his prayer to the God of his fathers, we also hear the younger son's thoughts when he is coming back to his father. The younger son, when he was coming back to his father, said that when I see my father, I'll tell him, I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. What does Jacob say? Say, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. He's right, but that's grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We didn't earn it, we're given it. We see into his very soul right here, the soul of someone who is very close to being broken of his sin and his self-sufficiency to truly be able to sing as that song that would occur many, many years later, I surrender all. He's afraid and he tells God so. And it's perfectly fine that when we are praying to the, to the great doctor of our souls to tell him where we hurt, where we are afraid. We have so many examples of the godly doing this in the scriptures, of David in the Psalms, of Paul in the New Testament if you want an explanation as to why this encounter with God for Jacob is different from the other ones, we can look at this prayer right here. He has everything depart from him. He is alone. He has prayed to the Lord. In verse 12, Jacob does something in verse 12 that the psalmist and Moses do. They remind God of his promises. In your prayers, remind God of his promises. Quote scripture in your prayers. Use scripture in your prayers. He prays. And then we, when we get to at the end of his prayer in verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring the sand of the sea, which you cannot be numbered for multitude. Verse 13, so he stayed there that night and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. George Mueller, great man of faith, who is from Germany, who moved to London. Somebody asked him, what is the hardest what is the hardest, most important part of prayer? He says, the 15 minutes after I've said amen. Because that proves whether or not you believed what you just prayed. See, I can say all the flowery language in prayer. I've studied prayer. I know a number of prayers, both in, both in the Middle Ages and today. But what happens 15 minutes after I'm done praying? Says everything. You know what Jacob does 15 minutes after he's done praying? Time to scheme again. 
Maybe if I send him a bribe this time, it'll, it'll really get through. And maybe his anger will really be done. Verse 13, so he stayed there that night. And from, from what he had, he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 14, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. Wow, he did get a lot of livestock from his father-in-law. 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to the servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, um, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do they belong? Where are you going? And, and whose are the, uh, who are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent um, to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Verse 19, he likewise instructed the second and the third, all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. The bribe. After the prayer, Jacob sends a bribe to Esau. Maybe if the report of him being in no need isn't enough. Maybe if the prayer isn't enough. This bribe will be. We can tell by Jacob's next action, by sending away the two camps, that he says perhaps in this, in this section of scripture, but he really thinks perhaps not. This really might be the end. Jacob will prevail here, but it's not his plans that prevail. It's his prayers. C.H. Spurgeon said, whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. If you may have everything by asking in his name and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. It's a common theme we see for Jacob. Jacob makes his plans, but it's God who defends, provides, and shepherds him. It's his prayer, not his plans that succeed. And perhaps we too should pray before we plan and just expect God to to shine down upon what we've already decided we're going to do. In verse 22 through 32, we have Israel the wrestler. In 22, the same night he rose and took two wives and two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of, Je of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled him until the breaking of the day. Jacob is finally in a place where he can hear from God. It's hard to hear from God when we have all the hustle and bustle of life. When we busy ourselves to the point of no time, it's hard to hear from God. It's hard to have an encounter with God. But when we are alone, we are stripped of all of our abilities. When all we have is the Lord, we find out he is all we need. And we have placed ourselves in a position to where we can hear from God. Jacob is left with nothing. In Iran, Jacob married twice and had two concubines. He had 11 sons and one daughter, huge flocks, servants. It's one of the things he praised God for. Now, which is his own fault, all of that is gone and he is alone. We try to insulate ourselves with all these things in life. All of the noise in life so that we can't hear the music of heaven. All of that won't be there for us on the day of trouble. On the day of trouble, we will, not be able to, we will not be able to turn to anybody else. On the day of judgment, we won't be able to say, hey, I was misled. Hey, because of this person, I did this. On, that's on, the, day of, on the day of judgment. On the day of trouble, though, it'll be us. It'll be us and 
If you're a believer, it's one other. I remember there was a song. I was a choir nerd when I was, when I was in high school. Some of you are choir nerds too. You hear a lot of these songs. I remember there was this spiritual, as somebody sang at competition, it's called The Lonesome Valley. And it goes something like, um, Jesus had to walk his lonesome valley. He had to walk it by himself. No one else could walk it for him. He had to walk it by himself. Good. Second verse I hated with a passion. It says, we have to walk our lonesome valley. We had to walk it by our, we have to walk it by ourselves. Nobody else can walk it for us. We have to walk it by ourselves. I hate that because it's like the reason Jesus walked his lonesome valley is so that you don't have to walk it by yourself. He's all alone, but he's not alone. There's this man there and they wrestle. They wrestle to the break of day. Jacob is left alone. um, On the surface, it seems all the scheming has come to nothing. He's desperate. He's broken. He can't fix what he's broken. He's in the perfect position to meet with God. This is the the pre, by the way, spoiler alert, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We know this from Jacob's description later on. He doesn't know who this man is, only that he shows up and starts grappling with him. And he wrestles with him all night long. And as I said before, we know from this, we also know from Hosea chapter 12, I'll talk about that, so that uh, reference in just a second, that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the one who spoke the universe into motion. So you might wonder, okay, how, how is he able to wrestle with him all night? How come God doesn't just turn him into a pillar of salt? How, I mean, uh, at daybreak, he touches his hip, it goes out of place. It's because Jacob was able to capture the heart of God by being desperate for him. So we can't overcome God. Our will is not stronger than his will. When we wrestle, when we are completely broken, God does not resist a contrite heart. And for this point right here, I thought I would call up somebody from the past. Um, number of years ago, when I, was a, when I was a youth leader, when I was a youth pastor, I preached on this, and I found a video of when I preached on it, making this very point. Go ahead and play it. That always goes so much better in my mind. It's like, as soon as I'm done with my transition, it's up. And I didn't, I didn't cue you fast enough. Sorry, I should have had some transition there. Here, turn Rock bottom. <laughs> Rock bottom. <laughs> yeah. The people's elbow. No. <laughs> Jacob was down and started getting towards daybreak. It says that God touched his thigh. I'm not going to touch Cody's thigh. And it went out of joint. You think the fight would be over right now. You think that he'd be done. You think that there's no way he's getting back up and God is just going to leave and everything's going to be exactly the same. That's not what happens. He gets up. He gets up. Not out of confidence, not anything other than desperation and humility. He grabs back the room and he tells God he's not giving up. He's not giving up until he makes him new, until he gives him a new name. And this is what happened. Jacob, not because he was stronger, not because he was better, but because of his persistence, God gives him a new name. He says, no longer are you called the heel grabber. 
No longer are you the deceiver, but your name is Israel. What Israel means is he who strives with God and man and overcomes. He gives him the belt. He says, you're new. You're Israel. Thank you very much, Cody. Who are you giving a hand? Some Trone trivia here. That young man who, uh, that was me, by the way. If you can't tell, I was not in as good shape as I am today. But man alive, okay, wrestling is fake, but it takes a lot out of you. Um, I, it was a silly idea to pr- try to preach while I was doing that. But um, that young man, Cody, he's actually a, um, an indie professional wrestler today. So apparently that made a big impact on his life. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's unable to wrestle in him in his own strength, although wrestling all night in any degree is an incredible physical feat. Now, wrestling is better than, a, than five hours of almost anything else. He wrestles with him all night. His hip is out of joint, but Jacob will not let him go until he is blessed. Imperfect as he is, he wants God. He's tired of being the schemer. He's tired of being the one who's always trying to do things on himself because he can't overcome, but he can overcome if he wrestles until the break of day and he, will, he holds on to him, not until you bless me. In Hosea chapter 12, it says, he took his brother by the heel in the womb and in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel. And there he spoke to us, that is, the Lord, God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial name. The Lord being there, what they're translating, is Yahweh. That's what captures the heart of God, is our desperation. Not our intelligence. Not how righteous we think we are, but our desperation to know him, to be with him. Jacob clinging on with his hip out of place. I won't let you go until you bless me. He fought so hard all of his life for himself, but now he is coming to this place of faith. He is being reborn. You are seeing what it looks like when God saves a soul. We see it in so many ways on the physical of somebody coming down to the altar, praying a prayer. But if somebody's truly saved, this is what you're seeing. Somebody who's wrestled all of their life is now finally completely defeated, completely desperately looking to hold on. He wrestles, the Lord wrestles them down, breaks them, and then before the dawn blesses them and remakes them. My testimony is so much like that. I was a junior hire. I know we have some junior hires today. And I've been told by people who knew me back then, I was the junior hire of junior hires, whatever that means. And uh, me and my friends had done something pretty bad um, during, uh, during Halloween, and I wanted to do something that I thought would be religious. So I started saying the Lord's Prayer. In the middle of the Lord's Prayer, I get to the part where it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And it was then the Lord started wrestling me. Because the Lord spoke to my heart, asked me if I died, where would I go? I tried to tell him, oh, I don't know, nobody knows, and the Lord knows. And he's like, yeah, right. And I'm like, And the Lord started showing me all my sins, not from my perspective. My perspective, I was a good person, but from his perspective. And by the time he was done wrestling me down, I told the Lord that night, if you didn't send me to hell, you're not a good God. And that entire night, tears running down my face, confessing everything I could think of to the Lord. 
I was wrestling with him until the dawn. I fell asleep that way. And I woke up the next morning. I've described it like you've never seen color before. We, we see that at the beginning of our, of our walk with the Lord, but every moment as well, because the Lord looks to break us of things after we've been saved as well. And if we would allow him to completely break us of it, we would get a new name by morning. In AD 320, there was 40 members of what was called the Thundering Legion. Their, their name, the Legion, was literally translated as those who have lightning for a weapon. 40 members of this Legion came to faith in Jesus Christ, and they were passionate about their faith. They were passionate. They were telling others in the Legion about this, and because of the political situation at the time, they couldn't allow this, so they thought, okay, we don't want to lose these 40 because they're awesome warriors, but we can't let them have another king besides Caesar. We can't allow them to say somebody is Lord besides Caesar. So these 40, they ordered them to go out onto this frozen lake where they would freeze to death, or they could renounce their faith. They could come back to the shore. There was, there was baths, warm baths waiting for them. There was a house that was nice and warm. There was hot food for them. They just had to renounce Jesus as Lord and declare Caesar as Lord. These 40, without being told, they strip off their clothing. They go out onto the lake in regiments of 10. And on the lake, they sing hymns. And they chant, they pray, to, they pray to the Lord, and they tell the Lord, 40 wrestlers have come to do battle. Grant that 40 wrestlers would have, the victor, would have the victory, and from you the victor's crown. The night drags on. And as dawn is about to break, one of the men who can't stand the cold anymore, seeing all of his friends freeze to death, there is still, there is still them singing the Psalms and praying this prayer. He he steps away and he renounces his faith in Jesus Christ. There was a centurion tasked with guarding these men. And he heard them all night long singing their psalms and praying this prayer. Forty wrestlers have come to wrestle for you, O Christ. Grant that 40 wrestlers would have the victory and from you the victor's crown. And when that one man came, came back, they started saying, Lord, 39 wrestlers have come to wrestle for thee. Grant that 39 wrestlers would have the victory. The centurion, we don't know really anything about him. Name is Vespian. And he heard, he heard them and he starts walking out towards the lake, taking off his armor, taking off his clothes. And he chants with them, 40 wrestlers have come to wrestle for thee, O Christ. Grant that 40 wrestlers would have the victory. And in church history, we call them the Holy 40. What would it be like for you, that thing that you're dealing with, that struggle that has been a lifelong struggle for you to wrestle all night, that one wrestler has come to wrestle for thee, O Christ, to win from thee, for thee victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Jacob had wrestled with God until the dawn. He had his hip taken out of place, yet still he would not go until he was blessed, and blessed he was. He wasn't the heel grabber anymore. He wasn't the deceiver anymore. He was Israel, who means he who strives with God and man and overcomes. Some translations of it simply is God overcomes. And he is given a new name, but you are given a new name as well. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's you and me. Take notice. 
To the one who conquers. What does Israel mean? The one who overcomes? The one who conquers? To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In first century Rome, I talked about the Holy, the Holy Forty, sorry, the Holy Forty. It got real bad, obviously. But before it got real bad, it was very petty. The persecution Christians had to face before they became a believer, they were invited to all the parties, all the soirees, all the important matters of state. They'd be invited because some of them were wealthy. Some of them were important people in the Roman, in, in the Roman hierarchy. But the moment they became a Christian, those invites stopped coming. The way the invite would come is you'd have a white stone, flat stone, and your name would be written on it. You'd then bring this white stone to the party. The Lord tells him, you're not getting to go to any of these earthly parties, but you're going to get to go to a banquet. And you're not missing out on anything because it's far better than anybody can possibly imagine. And there's a name that only you and I know. How, how deeply personal is our relationship with God? Sometimes I'm praying and I tell God, there's a part of me that no one knows except you. See, there, there, there's several different versions of ourselves, right? There's the version that people see on a Sunday morning, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. There's who we are apart from all of that by ourselves. But then there's a secret hidden one too that only the Lord knows. And that those who conquer, those who overcome, you will get this stone and it'll have your name written on it. In verses 29 and 30, Jacob says, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. This is how we know it is God. And the incarnate form of God in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Seen him face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob had a limp. Israel, I should call him Israel from now on because that's what scripture does. Israel has a limp for the rest of his life. Frederick um, Birchner, a Christian writer, says one, um, said that this right here is the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. This is the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. When we come to faith, this is what happens. But in our faith, as the Lord continues to bring things up, he wants us to wrestle until we're completely defeated, until we walk differently. That's the thing, dear believer, you should be walking differently. This year, you should be walking differently than you walked last year. You should be growing in holiness. You shouldn't, first of all, the idea of you stagnating, you just being at the same level is a myth. You don't drift towards safety as a believer. You always drift towards apostasy, towards your love for the Lord growing cold. And we're not growing in him. We are absolutely backsliding. He walks with a limp the rest of his life. Right, what we have right here is this the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. 
That's my prayer for you. This is what I pray for myself. Because even for me, even for me, there's things I wrestle with. And oftentimes I do exactly what I told you before. I wrestle with it a little bit. I say, I'm done. Then I got to wrestle with it later. Then I got to wrestle with it later until the Lord finally breaks me. Here's, here's one thing I'm currently dealing with. In fact, I just talked with some other pastors. We got together today, other gospel preaching pastors here in Algona. And so we're talking about things that we're dealing with, struggles, sins that we're dealing with. So I was talking about the sin I'm dealing with, that God's bringing to the forefront in my life. And that is, I can't be your Holy Spirit, church. I can't. I can't be your sin eater. And to be honest, in my heart, I have been that for the last four years. I say this, but I truly mean it. When you're suffering, I'm suffering too. I wake up in the middle of the night sobbing because of what you're going through. And I, I do think that a lot of this was an attack, the devil capitalizing this, but I think that stroke I had was because of that. And God is now bringing that as something I need to wrestle with him about. Until I, until I truly realize that you're his sheep and I'm just the under shepherd. And I'm here to feed you. I don't want to lose my compassion. I don't want to lose the things that I think make me a good pastor. But at the same time, I cannot act as though you are my sheep because you are not. You are the master's sheep. And because I love him, I will feed you because that is what he told Peter. For you today, wrestle with God and tell the blessing. The persistent widow, I already told you about that parable of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. How desperate are you for God? How desperate are you to know him better? I think our prayer lives really prove this because we think five minutes a day is really going to be enough to get closer with God. And you only did five minutes last year too and five minutes the next year every day. Don't be surprised. Your, your, your desire for God really isn't there. And when you pray, it feels like you're just bouncing off the wall. You're not desperate for him yet. This last Wednesday, I, I'm doing this series, by the way, and here's the plug for it on how to read the Bible. You know what I desire in this? Not simply that you might have an encyclopedic knowledge of the scriptures so that you can own somebody in, a, in an online debate. Is What I want is for you to, in your Bible reading, for you to have a moment like Jacob wrestling with God himself. That as you read the scriptures, you have this deep personal connection with the Lord. How It makes you desperate for him. Desperate to know him. Desperate for him to change you. In order to do this, you need to do what Jacob did and you need to get all the noise out of your life. We have so much noise in our life and to be honest, so much of it is our own fault. So many of us will, will, will complain slash kind of brag about how busy we are. And let's be honest, a lot of the time when we're like, oh, I'm so busy, it's a little bit of a humble brag. What we're doing is we're putting noise in our life so that we can't hear the music of heaven. C.S. Lewis's book, The Great... The, the screw tape letters, I almost got it confused. The screw tape letters. In that, and this is not scripture, but he says the great, the great goal of Satan and his angels is to fill the universe with so much noise, the people of God cannot hear the music of heaven. You can't hear the voice of God when you're just constantly listening to every other voice there is. Have you, for, you have a name no one else but you and God know. Do you live like that or have you forgotten who you are? So as we examine the scripture, as we worship team come up here, 
as we take this moment to reflect on the word of God and to allow it to change us, not simply be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Remember to pray before you plan. Make prayer your go-to. For many of us, prayer is the backup plan. Just like Jacob, prayer needs to be plan A. What are those areas in your life that you've been wrestling with, but you've been giving up? You need to wrestle until the, until the morning, metaphor, uh, metaphorically, until the blessing comes. And here's the third thing. God gives Jacob two memorials. One is his name, which is Yahweh. The second is the limp. God has done something in your life, dear believers. I know he has. Have you forgotten about it? Even our young believers here, if you are with the Lord, he saved you. That's a memorial in your life for you to remember. For some of us, we have stories of amazing things God did in our life. I shared a couple of them today in my own life. And I remember that night when I gave my life to the Lord. It's a memorial. It makes me walk differently. What are the memorials in your life that you need to remember that maybe you've forgotten? Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? And here's our opportunity to reflect, to put into practice what God's word says, to wrestle in those areas we need to wrestle until we get the victory.